This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Last Wednesday at the UN headquarters in New York, more than 50 countries signed an historic treaty to ban nuclear weapons. The ceremony came after 122 countries voted voted in favour of a treaty back in July, and it marks another step forward in the international community's push towards a nuclear-free world. With escalating tensions between the USA and North Korea, however, together with the fact that none of the nine countries in possession of nuclear weapons were involved in these negotiations, there remain questions as to the ultimate effectiveness that such a ban might have. Dr Tillman Ruff is a long-term campaigner against nuclear weapons. Currently, he's an associate professor at the Nossel Institute for Global Health at the University of Melbourne and also co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And I'm very pleased that he's able to join us today in the studio to talk about all these matters. Welcome, Tillman. Thanks very much, Dylan. So when we spoke uh, last in July, uh, we had a Skype hookup from uh, you in New York. You were over there for these negotiations uh, on a treaty to ban nuclear weapons at the UN. It's since been adopted and now signed by over 50 countries. Are you optimistic about where the world is heading with regard to nuclear disarmament? I think I see very two very diverse trends. One is the increasingly reckless and dangerous behaviour and this extraordinary level of brinkmanship and very explicit threats to use nuclear weapons that we're hearing from both the presidents of North Korea and of the United States. Uh, that really highlight that nuclear weapons haven't gone away and that have led many commentators to suggest that the period of risk that, we, that we're that we in right now is probably the worst since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 when we claim that close. So on the one hand, you know, nobody should need reminding now that these weapons haven't gone away, that this doomsday machine is wired to go still and there's an urgent need to get rid of these weapons. And on the other hand, partly driven by that realisation, we've had this extraordinarily hopeful development that really is the best news in disarmament since the end of the Cold War, an opportunity that unfortunately wasn't taken and really grabbed to to take it all the way to zero at that opportunity. This is the best thing that the world has done in, in almost 30 years on disarmament. It fills the gap that has seen the worst of all weapons and the last category of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, that don't have, that didn't have an explicit legal prohibition in an international treaty. And that gap has been fixed now very effectively by this treaty that provides a very comprehensive and categorical prohibition on a humanitarian basis for nuclear weapons and says these nobody can use these legitimately use threaten develop deploy assist transfer do any have anything to do with them um, and that's been adopted as you mentioned by you know two-thirds of the world's governments by a vote of 122 to one mm. on the 7th of July and 50 nations signed the treaty on the day that it opened last Wednesday and a couple more were added so we're now up to 53 um, I'm very hopeful that we'll have a hundred by the end of the year and and it will enter into force so become international law binding on those nations that sign it once 50 states have ratified it so I'm hoping that'll be around the middle of next year. So it provides a pathway uh, for every state to join, really. If you've got nuclear weapons now, if you've had them in the past, if you've got them stationed on your soil, if you claim protection from them, even if they're not yours, uh, like uh, our own country, Mm. then there's a pathway for you to join this treaty. And I think this really sets an international benchmark that is absolutely unequivocal, uh, that really is historic. 
Um, and that really now provides a sort of a watershed. If you're serious about nuclear disarmament, you will sign and support this treaty. If you don't, then you're not serious about disarmament or you have a much better plan and we haven't heard about it yet. So was this treaty to, to ban nuclear weapons and, and the you know vast range of countries that came on board with that, driven by, I guess, a frustration, the lack of progress towards disarmament, which was a key pillar of the, the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. Why didn't that kind of work in, in the desired way that, that I guess people back then thought it might? Well, the hope, that, that was the bargain. As you say, the, the NPT is seen as the sort of key piece of the international non-proliferation and disarmament architecture around nuclear weapons, as it's called. And it was essentially a bargain. So the five states that at the time the treaty entered into force in 1970 that had nuclear weapons, which happened to be the permanent five members of the Security Council, France, UK, um, China, Russia, uh, formerly USSR uh, and the US. Um, so the deal was we'll get rid of our weapons in exchange for all of the countries that haven't got them not acquiring mm. them. And the sweetener, to keep you happy, will be we'll assist you with peaceful uses of nuclear technology. That was the deal. That was 47 years ago. But the problem was that that didn't actually say you can't have, you shouldn't have nuclear weapons. There's certainly a binding legal obligation to negotiate disarmament and to achieve it. But there's no time frame, there's no mechanism, there's none of the detail that you would need to have an enforceable, verifiable regime that moves forward step by step. Um, so basically not much has happened on disarmament, a little bit of tweaking around the numbers, you know, the numbers have reduced, unfortunately that not enough to reduce the risk we face. So it remains this very important but unfulfilled promise essentially mm. but with no machinery to actually deliver on it. And you uh, briefly touched on uh, just before that Australia has not signed up to this treaty and didn't participate in, in those negotiations at the UN earlier this year. Why is that? Why are we unwilling to kind of come to the table on this? Really good question, Dylan, because we uh, signed up to the Biological and Chemical Weapons Conventions. We've signed up to the Landmines and Cluster Munitions Treaties that make it clear that each of those indiscriminate, inhumane weapons beyond the pale, you shouldn't have them, they're banned and now we're going to get rid of them and we're at various stages of doing that pretty effectively I have to say. So why wouldn't you apply the same logic to the worst of all weapons is a really good question. But the fundamental problem is that Australia claims to rely on US nuclear weapons as the ultimate guarantor of its security uh, and prosperity actually is the government's claim. So essentially what that says is, you know, we're willing in some circumstances unspecified for US nuclear weapons to be used indiscriminately kill millions of civilians somewhere else um, on our behalf. It's a pretty inconsistent and unacceptable position for us to take. And those countries that have nuclear weapons or those that claim to rely on them, so the nine states that have them, the 28 states of NATO, uh, North Korea, sorry, South Korea, Japan and Australia that are in this position of claiming to rely on US nuclear weapons didn't join and mm. the negotiations have boycotted them, have basically canned this process pretty much at every stage, um, saying this is not the way forward. But the treaty is here now. This is not just an idea. The treaty is here. It will enter into force very soon. What are you going to do? Um, and I think because it is such a clear, comprehensive prohibition, because it does, no country that say, can say this treaty is not for us. There's a pathway for every country 
to join this treaty. I think if you're serious, the pressure to join this treaty will mount and it would be... I can't see any way that Australia will not eventually sign, but it's up to us to mm. make that happen. And um, we've heard um, Malcolm Turnbull in the midst of this kind of back and forth between um, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump over the past week, it's kind of escalated, I guess, um, saying that, uh, you know, Australia would support the US in any potential conflict. And um, he had comments on breakfast television over the past um, few days, um, kind of, I guess, acknowledging that if it does get to that stage, that North Korea would be basically wiped out, which would result in a lot of innocent deaths. Are you concerned about, I guess, the the nature of, of our Prime Minister's comments in relation to the, um, you, you know, whether, whether war were to happen between those two countries and our kind of blind allegiance to the US? Y- yes, I am. And uh, on several respects. One is that the talk of war is now so loud that essentially for you know, leaders with a lot of skin in the game now who've made such extreme threats, both President Trump and Kim Jong-un, you know, they're being boxed into a corner where diplomacy is looking increasingly less possible politically. You know, they're either sort of being backed into a corner where either it's nuclear war or a total humiliating backdown, neither of which is an attractive option. But... Mm. Australia, instead of saying blindly, we will follow whatever the US does, and by the way, the ANZUS Treaty doesn't oblige us to do anything specific at all other than consult. So we sit down and talk, and the ANZUS Treaty actually also, in a very rarely cited section, talks up the importance of the UN Charter and of both countries promoting international law. One of the first articles of the UN Charter is that you're not permitted to... um, engage in war unless you've been attacked so only on a defensive basis. Donald Trump's threat at the United Nations late last week to utterly destroy North Korea is totally reckless and unacceptable and, you know, completely beyond the bounds. That's not the goal. That's not a legitimate military goal. Um, and this is not talking about defence. So Australia should be talking up diplomacy, the need. This has got to be solved Diplomatically, this can't be solved militarily. Um, there are tens of millions of people in the Korean Peninsula, in China and Japan. If Russia or the China get embroiled in any conflict, which is, I think, a very significant risk in North Korea, then this could easily escalate to a global nuclear war. This really needs to be hosed down seriously and fast, and mm. that's what Australia should be saying helping to open back doors, helping to encourage dialogue, helping to step away from this brinkmanship where, you know, big men paint themselves into a corner where all they can do is lash out or or be seen to face a back down. That that's not an acceptable solution. We need to be we're not saying we're not with you to fight, we're with you to figure out a better way. Mm. If you just tuned in, we're speaking with uh, Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, who's uh, at the University of Melbourne and also co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He's been an anti-nuclear campaigner for a very long time. And I mean, one of the the major concerns, I guess, about nuclear proliferation and the development of nuclear weapons is, of course, what would happen if they're eventually used in any kind of conflict. But it's also around the testing and the impact that has disproportionately on the most kind of vulnerable people in our society. And North Korea has been testing missiles lately. There's talk of testing potentially a hydrogen bomb in the Pacific Ocean. I wonder if you can speak about the the environmental effects of even testing these weapons and and the effect that has on on the environment and on people living in in particular places. Yeah, well, 
Nuclear testing, has, there's been a lot of it, and it's been for the purposes of weapons development. There have been over 2,000 nuclear test explosions over the decades. Um, thankfully, they had almost stopped, and, and North Korea is, in fact, as the foreign minister has said, is the only country that's blown up nuclear weapons this, uh, this century and continues to do so. Unfortunately, the comprehensive test ban treaty that would ban all nuclear explosions for any purpose anywhere uh, has yet to enter into force because key countries, including the US, have refused to ratify it. Um, North Korea tests underground. There's a risk, so far it has, this threat of a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific sounds like an atmospheric nuclear test that releases a lot more radioactivity where it can be blown and brought down by, by the rain, you know, all around the world on the country's um, nearest and f further away eventually. Um, so far, its tests have been underground. Sometimes if the containment isn't complete, they can actually vent radioactivity, blast it directly into the atmosphere. That doesn't seem to have happened with any of the tests yet, but it's always a risk. But long term, you've got this massive amount of highly radioactive material that's blasted into rocks that are shattered by the process that then risk long-term leakage into groundwater and into the environment. Uh, that's a long-term risk. And of course, the short-term risk is that this the purpose of these tests is to develop and perfect nuclear weapons and thereby increase the risk of their use and of nuclear war. And that's, of course, the biggest risk associated with them. Um, if North Korea came good on its threat to to make a, an atmospheric nuclear test somewhere in another global region, um, it would be a really regrettable step. It would be a terrible thing to do. It would cause fallout that would directly harm people in Pacific Island countries and Pacific Rim and spread globally. It would also, I think, pose a very serious risk of, of armed conflict um, mm. erupting ar around the Korean Peninsula, which it, you know is not going to end well uh, for anybody. And uh, the UN has imposed sanctions against North Korea and, and China's also been, been part of those as well, as I understand it. Together with the, the treaty banning nuclear weapons at the UN, um, how much hope is there that this will have an effect on, on reducing the, the probability of, of war between the US and North Korea or the eventuation of, of nuclear war? I think overall, you know, you have to say that diplomacy is possible and diplomacy has been possible previously with North Korea. Part of the problem has been that previous agreements haven't been kept, particularly by the US administration, which the 94 agreement under the Clinton administration agreed to provide assistance for, for North Korea for energy supplies um, in return for essentially capping its nuclear program. And that appeared to be working until the US essentially abandoned it. Um, North Korea, for all its other, you know, extraordinary brutality and human rights abuses that, that I would not want to, you know, defend in the slightest, it's an appalling government that has seen and been willing to tolerate millions of its people starving in recent decades. Um, but it does demonstrate that any determined country, even the most impoverished and isolated, can develop nuclear weapons and missile technology. I mean, that technology is out of the bag and our mm. only hope is not to try and contain it but to actually have a, a strong international regime that says one law for everybody um, and that would provide very significant pressure and reassurance to North Korea. But what does North Korea want? North Korea wants assurance of regime survival. Uh, North Korea wants an end to the hostilities around the Korean War, which ended in the 50s, but there's still no peace treaty and non-aggression pact mm. as a result of, of the outcome of that war. There's only an armistice, so no durable, lasting peace agreement. 
they want the aggressive and large-scale military deployments and exercises that the US and South Korea are engaged in to stop. Um, they want some credit and attention. Um, you know, they clearly want international trade and, uh, and access to services. So, you know, there is room to negotiate. Um, there are interests here that can be served, and, and clearly China and, and Russia are in key positions to, to be of influence here, but, but they're going to be much more cooperative and helpful um, if the US is not playing such an aggressive game. And so what next for this treaty? So it's been signed by over 50 nations so far. Now what happens with it? When does it come into effect? So as soon as 50 nations have ratified it, which like signing it means is a decision that can be taken quickly, Mm. which signals the intent of a country to abide by the obligations of the treaty and to in the interim not to do anything that would undermine the purpose of the treaty. And then when it's been through all its constitutionally mandated processes, government reviews, parliamentary approval that takes, you know, months or half a year in many cases, then it can ratify the treaty and then it formally becomes bound by it once it enters into force. And this treaty will enter into force once 50 states have ratified it, 90 days after 50 states have ratified it. It's open for signature indefinitely, so countries can sign up and and we expect more to sign up in, in days and weeks ahead. So it will enter into force in probably the middle or so of next year, I would expect. Mm. Um, and every one of those stages, it's adoption, it's opening for signature, it's accumulation of of large numbers of signatories and ratifications, then it's entry into force. And then once the states that have joined the treaty start to meet regularly to promote its implementation, every one of those steps, I think the pressure will ramp up. This treaty matters, and you can tell that because the nuclear armed states oppose it so strongly. Mm. And the reasons that they've stated have nothing to do with the public ones, that it wouldn't work and it's not effective and it doesn't involve them um, and it might actually increase the risks of nuclear war. The reasons that they actually state are that it would interfere with and delegitimise their reliance on nuclear deterrence and potential use of nuclear weapons, which is exactly what the treaty is intended to do. So this treaty matters. And and pressure will mount on on Australia, do you think, as more countries sign sign on and and ratify this? No question. We we stick out like an absolutely sore thumb in the region. So far, seven Pacific Island countries, New Zealand, six of the ten... Uh, ASEAN countries, countries of Southeast Asia have already signed the treaty. A number of, Thailand in particular, actually ratified it at the same day they, they signed it. Just uh, got it done. <laughs> just did it. Uh, they've really been one of the leaders. So so we really do stick out like a sore thumb in the region. But it's very much something that we need to press our governments. Um, the Labor Party has a very good policy on paper of supporting a ban but hasn't yet really articulated what that means. So far we've got over 50 signatures from Australian parliamentarians on a petition, on, on, an, on a declaration essentially that they will support Australia signing the treaty. And so far we've got over half of the Parliamentary Labor Party. We've got Nats, Libs, Xenophon team, Independents and all of the Greens signing up to that. So the pressure on this is something that will eventually make it happen. Um, and New Zealand and other countries have demonstrated very clearly to us that you can have an alliance relationship with the US that excludes use of nuclear weapons. We just need to figure out how to do that. Mm. Uh, but that's doable.
Yeah, it's one of the most important issues um, of our times that we face currently. And very much thank you for coming on Triple R to um, tell us all about it. Thanks, Tillman. Thanks for having me, Della. And coming up on Sunday, October 8, is a fantastic-looking fundraiser for Girls Rock Australia, an organisation that runs music, education and performance camps for girls, trans and gender non-conforming young people aged between 10 and 17, all in the name of providing a positive and encouraging environment and, uh, I guess, helping to kickstart their career as well and their love of music. One of the many acts appearing at the show uh, coming up next month is Totally Mild, and I'm very lucky to be joined in the studio by Liz Mitchell. Thanks so much for stopping by Triple R. Thanks for having me. I'm going to turn your mic on so yeah. it, makes it makes it a bit easier to have a <laughs> <There> conversation. <it> <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, it's an amazing lineup uh, at this fundraiser that's coming up next month. You're one of um, many great acts, including Camp Cope, Hachiku, Labolwa, and Boats, and there's a whole lot of other stuff happening down there as well. But I mean, Girls Rock uh, Melbourne is a pretty young organisation, only officially started, I think, at the start of this year. But how important is it at a young age to have kind of an encouraging environment and, and people to, to help you hone and, and learn your craft and feel confident about it? I think it's an amazing thing that's to have it started in Melbourne as well because we have such a thriving music community but there is kind of a gap for underage people so to go to shows but also to engage with the community. So I think it's really good to yeah. have that injection of like local musicians helping young people to, to learn yeah. And to develop their own communities, really, is That's really right. cool. That's right. And to be able to go away with people, because Girls Rock run camp, so this mm. isn't necessarily just a, a one-off gig you might head along to, and, you know, often at that age you're quite shy and yeah. you might be reluctant to um, to make friends and, and reach out to people. But if you're at a camp with um, workshops and, and pretty amazing musicians there helping you along, it would be a pretty encouraging thing. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I would have loved something like that when I was a teen. I, I mean, I went to music camps through school, but... It wasn't really the same thing. I really love the fostering of, like, you know, independent musicians rather than learning in a really prescriptive kind of way. Yes. Yeah, so, so what sort of music camps did you go to? Let's, um, let's go back to the beginning yeah. of Liz Mitchell's career. <laughs> um, I was a star trumpet player ah. all through high school. Not really star. But, I, um, yeah, I went to lots of music camps through that. But, yeah, I think having it independently from school is great because you can, I think, you know, you can't always be who you want to be when you're at school, especially um, like gender diverse people. I think it's definitely getting better, but and women and um, queer women getting all together and having that really supportive external environment. So good. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, yeah. I mean, schools can be quite hostile environments, yeah. to, particularly at that age where you're kind of, you know, discovering things about yourself and, and I guess coming to terms with your identity in a lot of Definitely. different ways. Although it seems like so much has changed since I was in high school, which is like 10 years ago. It does seem like a lot has moved forward. Mm. Um, you know, like feminist alliances forming in high schools, like that's so cool. Mm. Can't imagine something like that happening when I was at high school. Mm. Yeah. And, um, I mean, were you writing songs back then? I mean, you were learning trumpet at that age in <laughs> yeah. high school, but did you kind of have an idea that you wanted to be a, a singer songwriter in your own right at that stage? Um, I don't think I ever, I think for me, I never really framed it as something that I could do. I, I was writing, I started writing songs when I was like eight. Um, 
my dad is a musician and so he would always encourage me and he taught me to sing harmonies and stuff. So I was always, music was always like a very big part of my life, but I never really framed it as, oh, I could, I could be in a band. Like that seemed very distant. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think even for me, it wasn't until a boyfriend was like, hey, you're good at this. Who happens to still be my collaborator? So, <laughs> I mean, it's fruitful. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I love that Girls Rock is giving girls and gender diverse people like this space to be to frame it as something that's actually doable. Mm, absolutely. And um, I mean, let's chat a bit about Totally Mild. Your album, uh, Downtime, was out, feels like a, a long time ago it now, 20, 2015. <laughs> yeah, but, it does feel like a was, long time ago. It, it's been great to um, to kind of reacquaint myself with, with that album. It was a fantastic release and um, and you know, got a lot of airplay on Triple R. What have you been doing in the, the intervening time? Um, well, we have been recording a new album, so we... We've finished it and it is coming out imminently, um, early 2018. Exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, so yeah, we, we've been recording, which we actually took about a year to record the new album, which is, which is really nice. We did it, you know, we tracked everything live over, uh, like a couple of days really, but then we went in and did overdubs and heaps of, it's, it feels like more of an elaborate production than the first Mm. record, which was, very much us going into a studio and reproducing what we were doing live, which obviously I, I love that record, but it was really fun to take the time and, and make creative, like feel like we were making choices in the studio. Yeah, it's great to to kind of sit on an album for a while rather yeah. than just kind of bang one out because it, it does allow you that space to, to contemplate what you totally. actually want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it is weird, I think, to to work on something and then wait for it to come out. But, I mean, that was the same case with Downtime. We um, we recorded it two years before it was released, so it that felt a, like a long wait. This doesn't feel as long. And it's still exciting that it's coming out. You haven't sort of listened to the songs to death. and <laughs> I definitely haven't listened to them to death. I, I had to give myself some space from it. It was a very intense recording process. Like, mm. we were we were working with James Cecil, who produced the last produced and engineered the last record, and... He has a studio in Brunswick and we, we would just go there like two or three days a week really and just work on it. So it felt very intensive and I definitely needed some space from it afterwards, but I've come back around to it. Yeah. I, I'm proud of it. Fantastic. Sounds, yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, as well as, um, recording your album, you've also been touring and, and we're at South by Southwest earlier this year, yeah. um, and, and played some other shows over in the States too. What was that experience like? It was very, very exciting. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it feels like s- such a privilege to be able to go overseas and play music to people, especially if there are people there who are like, "Well, we know your music." <laughs> like that's quite bizarre and cool. Mm. Um, South by Southwest was very intense. Like it's a, it's um, it's a crazy time. Like so many people on the streets. Austin is, I think, a, a party place regardless. Yeah, it's a huge event, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it's very cool. I mean, I, w- I wish that I had seen more music. I feel like when you go to those kinds of conferences as a band, like maybe you miss, you miss out on seeing things a lot of the time because you're busy and tired from concentrating on your own stuff. But, Absolutely. um, yeah, it was very cool to be there. Were there many other Australian acts over there that you kind of hooked up with or? Um, 
Well, yes, Suzanne was there and we we shared two members at that time. So Zach and Ashley from Totally Mild were playing in her band as well. So that was very cool. It felt like we were a little gang. Um, And Gabriella Cohen was there as well. Um, So we kind of hung out a little bit. Yeah, it is nice whenever you go away and there are other Australian bands around. Mm, There's that. It's that sense of community that comes from being in Melbourne. Absolutely. Yeah. This uh, show you've got coming up uh, for this Girls Rock fundraiser, it's going to be your first show in Melbourne for a while? Yeah, for, for a little while. Um, it's going to be, I'm really just very excited to get back to playing more shows. We've obviously, we've had a little rest because we haven't had anything new to show people. So it's going to be really fun. Yeah, great. Yeah. Are there any plans for, for other shows, um, you know, with the, the album yep. starting to gather momentum yep. towards um, that release? We have um, some single launches that will be announced that are going to be in early November. Stay so, tuned. Yeah, they're TBC. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you can catch uh, Totally Mild uh, playing at Good Luck Number 1, a fundraiser for Girls Rock Australia, on Sunday, October the 8th from 4pm at the Curtain. And uh, money raised from the event goes towards funding Girls Rock Camps, uh, where girls trans and gen- gender diverse youth aged 10 to 17 can go to learn instruments and attend workshops and to build self-confidence uh, with some um, some fantastic members of the Melbourne music scene as well. If you want to find out more or participate at all in Girls Rock, you can head to girlsrockmelbourne.com and there's a fantastic lineup uh, as well as Totally Mild appearing on October the 8th at the Curtain, including Camp Cope, Hachiku, Laboa and Boats and uh, also... So that's a ticketed event upstairs, which is 20 bucks. Downstairs, free to the public with, uh, Jen Fricker, Brody Lancaster, author, of course, of No Way Okay Fine and founder of Film Fatales. Giselle Ornan Nguyen and, uh, June Jones from Two Steps on the Water, as well as Kelso, um, Kelly from Camp Cope's, uh, side project, solo project, and also Don't Fret Club, a live podcast, which is going to be going down there as well. So heaps to check out on Sunday, October the 8th, uh, down at the curtain for the girls. Rock fundraiser. Liz, thanks so much for coming into Triple R and can't wait to hear more from Totally Mild in the very near future. Yay. Well, last week, uh, also, uh, a new law passed in Victoria's Parliament to protect the Yarra River and ensure its continued health and survival for generations to come. The Yarra River Willipkin Birrung Moron Protection Bill, as it's formerly known, marks the first time a Victorian river has had a single piece of legislation devoted to its protection. The legislation will result in the establishment of a range of mechanisms to appropriately manage the river and its surrounds, including a new Bitterung Council, which will advise and advocate for appropriate management of the area. To tell us more about this new law and what it all means, we have on the line Dr Bruce Lindsay. He's a lawyer with Environmental Justice Australia. Bruce, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much. Good morning. And so this uh, act has been the result of a long campaign by a range of groups, including yourselves and also, uh, I guess, prominently the Yarra Riverkeeper Association. What was driving yours and, and other groups' concerns about the way the Yarra River has been managed over the years? Well, as you say, the, um, the, the act's come about as part of a, a campaign by a number of community groups. Both ourselves and the Yarra Riverkeeper um, worked collaboratively over a period of two years to um, uh, get this, to you know, influence the um, the government and get this law in place. Um, some of the key issues I think that have played out over time with the Yarra that have made it, imp- you know, imp- urgent or imperative to um, to get this law in place, and perhaps we'll describe what's in the law 
shortly. Mm. Um, really go back into the history of how the river's been married, managed over you know, probably more than a century. So to give some context, I think, to the situation um, of the river, obviously until European settlement, it was a very ancient river and it had very ancient, it was both an important natural asset in place in this part of the world, but it was also a very important human place for Wurundjeri uh, and the Butterong um, peoples. Um, and they lived along the river for thousands and thousands of years. Once the British came, of course, they, um, you know, uh, it settled along the river and used it for various purposes. Uh, importantly, towards the end of the, the 19th century, a lot of the upper part of the river was closed for Melbourne's water supply as a catchment, but a lot of the river downstream was obviously used, well, we could say more or less as a bit of an industrial sewer, so it was got very, you know, contaminated and dirty and... And also over a long period of time, what tended to happen is that the river and its management was very fragmented between different agencies, site councils, um, water authorities and so forth. So actually looking after the river um, amongst governing communities was a very fragmented exercise and it really hasn't contributed in modern times or more recent times to a sort of coherent and integrated and, and um, uh, well-functioning management of the river. Um, so that, they're some of the key dynamics that led to the situation that we got to now where it was felt that, look, the river's probably not in... It's in better state than it was, say, in the 60s and 70s, but and there's been improvements in terms of amenity and uh, the health of the river and so forth, but there was kind of a sense or a need to take the next step and to take the next long-term step in how the river was going to be managed. And... Uh, it was organisations in particular like the Riverkeeper Association and the leadership there that had taken a very long-term sense and campaign that they needed um, an act in particular for the whole river to be able to, you know, manage the river and, and bring, bring it back to life in many respects. Um, um, even though it's a highly managed river, you know, there's a great deal that can be done to improve it and to protect it and to Im and improve its health. So... Mm -hmm. What the, what is currently being put in place, and we've campaigned for, for for the last two years, is really to take the river to the next step of its management, um, and to deliver again to sort of protection and, and long term river health. Yeah, and, and as as you mentioned, Bruce, I mean one of the challenges with managing a river is that it obviously um, you know flows through a, a vast area and, and a range of different kind of local councils that are responsible for, for managing their jurisdiction and, and other agencies as well. So how does this act kind of smooth over that process and ensure that there's a, a cohesive plan for, for managing the river into the future? What does it do in a, in a tangible sense? Mm. Yeah, so as you point out, um, there are a lot of agencies responsible and probably one thing that we have to bear in mind here and recall is we're talking about an urban river or what is largely an urban river. Obviously, there's rural and peri-urban parts of the river as well and that makes the exercise of managing it very complex because you've got a lot of pressures on it um, and you've got a lot of, you know, very large population um, centred on this river. So what the, what the Act does um, essentially... Um, in its basic is set up some key mechanisms to manage the river over the long term and also to manage it, manage it in a more integrated fashion. Um, at the front end of the Act, there's a whole lot of um, important principles um, that guide how the Act's to work in terms of environmental principles, social principles, cultural um, 
principles, especially around the involvement of Wurundjeri, the traditional owners in management of the river. So that it's a very principled framework. Um, the Act then also sets up in its machinery the requirement to have a long-term, what is known as a community vision for the river, which is currently in the process of, in the early stages of being prepared. And that will be a 50-year vision for the Yarra River. So that's a very important and innovative and indeed possibly experimental approach to an urban river management is that the community will be asked under Melbourne Water's leadership to, um, to develop a 50-year vision of what the river should look like over that time period, which is an extraordinary thing when you think how things can change in 50 years. But it's, a, it's an ambitious and I think an important exercise to think that long term. Also as part of that, that exercise, there will be... Uh, put in place and prepared what will be known as a Yarra strategic plan, which will be a sort of integrated planning framework for the whole river. Um, when I say the whole river, from the ports up to where the Yarra River Dam is, so above um, Warberson, mm. um, and that will manage... That plan will be put in place, and there will be 10-year plans um, with, with a lot of public participation and community input to manage the river corridor, and also, to some degree, it will have a role in managing some of the land use planning uh, a bit further away from the river as well, because obviously those areas have big impact on sort of the waterway and river health through stormwater management and things like that. Um, so that's got that like time frame aspect to the to the law, but also it will attempt. It's a largely a land use planning framework, but it will also attempt to bind other agencies and actors like water authorities within that framework as well. So it tries to be a more integrated approach to how the river's going to be managed. And obviously that, that's a logical process if you think of how rivers work in practice. There's no point in trying to manage the bottom of the river and try to get good water quality down the bottom of the river and make it swimmable or whatever the ambition might be if you're not managing the upper part of the river and the middle part of the river. If you don't manage it as a whole then you're not going to get the outcomes at the end either. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And, um, I mean, it's interesting hearing about the community consultation into, I guess, the future vision for the river. And, and you mentioned uh, the consultation with uh, Wurundjeri people and traditional owners in, in drafting up this act and, and achieving the aims that, that um, I guess you have achieved with it passing Parliament. But um, this is also the first piece of legislation I was reading over the weekend to have a dual Indigenous language title and also include an Indigenous language preamble. So is the state government kind of, I guess, uh, you know, really earnest in, in the consultation and level of involvement and inclusion with the Wurundjeri people in the drafting of this legislation? And does this kind of figure as, um, I guess, a precursor of, of their, uh, I mean, I know they're moving towards a, a treaty potentially and engaging with the Indigenous community on, on that matter. What's, what's your thinking around that? Have we seen this before? Or is this a real kind of achievement? So we, we certainly haven't seen this in Victoria, in, in the legislation in Victoria. In that respect, it is very novel and very important, in my view, in terms of um, taking some steps towards reconciliation. So what the bill does, and well, when it becomes an act, a, a law, it will be an act, is, as you've pointed out in your introduction, the title of the bill is named in both English and Woiwurrung, which is the, the Kulin language that is, was spoken in this area. Uh, in Melbourne, um, but also includes a preamble, which is both in English and in Woiwurrung as well. So those matters may be symbolic, but uh, in my view, symbols can be very important, and they're very important in this context, I think, because they identify not only 
the ancient nature of the river as well as its modern characteristics and, and managing it for now. Uh, but it also uh, imports into the language of the bill and into its title even important concepts. So the Woiwurrung term in the name of the bill, Willapin Birrung Murrin, means keep the Yarra healthy or keep the river healthy. So even that's an important concept of what this is trying to achieve and where we're trying to go with it. So I think those dimensions of it, the bicultural character of the bill are important. The other thing that's important to bear in mind is Wurundjeri and the Wurundjeri Tribal Council have a, an important role in um, the drafting and preparation of this law and they're also going to have um, a standing role on the Birrung Council, which is going to be the key sort of advisory and advocacy and governance body that's going to be established under the Act. So. I think they're important measures in terms of um, Indigenous voice in this Act, but also in terms of shifting the way we in Australia, um, non-Indigenous people, think about the places that we're in. And uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Dr. Bruce Lindsay. He's a lawyer with Environmental Justice Australia. We're speaking all about uh, a new law that's set to ensure the continued protection of the Yarra River into the future. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Bruce, this is the first time in Victoria that we've had a single piece of legislation devoted to the protection of a river. Will this serve as a precedent for the protection of other rivers, either in Victoria or elsewhere, do you think? Look, I actually, I think it will. Um, in fact, that's been anticipated to some degree in the process that preceded the, um, the, the Act going into Parliament and so forth. So the terms of reference in the advisory process and the early consultation process for this bill included the possibility of extending these kind of models to, say, the Maribyrnong River um, and other urban rivers in Melbourne, which I think would be a very exciting and important initiative. Uh, I think that it's it is a it is a, a process and a model that could well be extended to other rivers elsewhere in Australia and indeed even overseas, um, especially in terms of urban rivers and urban waterways, which um, obviously, given the pressures that I referred to earlier, just on urban riverways, are often those waterways that a people have an affinity with, they know well, but are also been very very heavily impacted by industrialised society, so they're often in poor condition. Um, so if we can get this right, and I think this bill is, is goes, a, goes a considerable way to getting river management right in the urban context, and it sets up some important mechanisms to take further steps to get the river management right, like the Yarra Strategic Plan. If we can get that those steps correct, then I think we're setting up a good model to be able to... Um, I guess, export, for want of a better word, to other waterways, other river systems, other cities and so forth. Yeah, and we've, um, we've covered this issue a number of times um, over the years on this show, and it's great to see that it continues to move along and progress. And uh, very much thank you, Bruce, for coming on the show and shedding some light on what uh, this new bill will mean for the protection of the Yarra River. Thank you. Dr. Bruce Lindsay there. He's a lawyer with Environmental Justice Australia. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.